1: and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's show, we're going to welcome a special guest as Baltimore sports and life Stephen Loftus joins us to give an early preview of the 2021 MLB draft. Um, we're going to introduce introduce him in a few minutes, and before that, we're going to get into a Quick discussion on uh, some of the highlights and lowlights of the last week of Orioles baseball. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business. It was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we're recording this on Wednesday night in what was supposed to have been the third game of the current series between the Orioles and Seattle Mariners, but that game was postponed due to uh, wet conditions here in Baltimore, so the two teams will resume tomorrow afternoon. Um, Kind of been an interesting week here. We did see the Orioles get their first win at home in the second game of a doubleheader on Tuesday, but we also saw uh, a few struggles along the way. Dean Kramer not looking quite sharp in his second outing of the season. Um, so we're going to get into some of that very quickly before we bring in Steven. So Nick, I'll start with you. What are your, kind of your highlights and lowlights since we were last on the air?
2: I mean, I guess for me, two big highlights. I'll keep it positive here. Uh, we're talking MLB draft today, so let's let's keep the mood, the spirit up a little bit. Um, Brian Mountcastle, I think, is a positive so far. He's got a five game hit, five game hitting streak, uh, eight hits in his last seven games. Um, yeah, I didn't look again today before, well, they got a doubleheader now on Tuesday, but I mean, Ryan Mountcastle had seen the fourth highest percentage of breaking balls in all of baseball going into yesterday's game and because he wasn't hitting those pitches, and he's hitting those pitches now. He's up to like 300 batting average against breaking balls. I had a couple good hits uh, the other day against Seattle. Uh, I, I think it's just the strikeouts are an issue for the whole team, Mountcastle especially, but I, I think with him, you know, we're talking about baby steps here, one thing at a time, uh, small improvements. And the other thing for me that stood out was Bruce Zimmerman. I mean, two good quality starts so far, both of them against Boston. Pretty much nearly identical stat lines in both those starts, but you really can't complain about what he's done so far. Uh, Six innings in each start, nine strikeouts, just two walks. He's going to get Seattle again tomorrow, I think. I don't know, game one or game two. I didn't look before we hopped on, but hopefully get Seattle again tomorrow. So, you know, he he ranks 22nd. Looking at some of his numbers before we jumped on, he ranks 22nd in the majors right now in that called strike plus whiff rate. Um, Nearly 32%. He's fourth in the major leagues right now, first pitch strikes. So he's getting ahead early. He's feeling confident. He looks confident. And it's just nice to see him start off the year pretty strong.
3: Yeah, that is definitely a positive. And especially with the Red Sox lineup that was just killing everyone after we swept them in the opening weekend, for him to be able to shut them down the way he did was pretty impressive. Them uh, seeing him a second time uh, right back to back like that. So. Good call there. I'll say the positive for me is obviously Cedric Mullins. I mean, the guy is just looking like an all-star out there. He's in the top 5% in the league and weighted on base uh, average. He's running balls down in the outfield. Other than that, I want to hit off the fence. It seemed like he played it a little poorly, but he's been excellent out there. He's walking more than I remember him ever walking. He's hitting left on left over 500 or around 500. He's just been fantastic. Unfortunately, he's basically the only Oriole that's really getting the hits to fall in other than Mountcastle uh, yesterday in the double and Michael Franco is getting, getting some hits here and there. But uh, my low light would have to be Trey Mancini and not because he's not hitting the ball hard because he is in the 90th percentile and max uh, exit velocity. He's barreling the ball almost 13% of the time, but You can just see the frustration. He's hitting into double plays. He's hitting balls hard, just right at people, and he is not taking kindly to that. So I feel bad for him.
1: Yeah, I will say Mancini, and this was probably my positive, was seeing him get that first home run last weekend. Um, But hopefully we start to see the bat come around overall. Um, and that should happen soon. Um, and as you guys said, Ryan Malcastle seems to be adjusting to the breaking balls now. I know there's still a lot of concerns about his defense, but you know, is Chris Stoner uh, over at the warehouse and the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life says, you know, maybe not too big of a concern if you see him as a first baseman long term. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. And then Dean Kramer, you know, kind of mixed results so far. But it, I think the key for him, and we've talked about this a lot, is going to be getting those first pitch strikes. If he can start getting ahead and account more, I think we're really going to see him turn a corner um, as the season goes on.
2: Yeah, that's still non-existent for him in that last outing, which is it, it stinks because when he does get ahead, that curveball becomes a weapon. And he's so much fun to see, but he's falling behind 1-0, 2 to just about every hitter. Uh, it's tough to watch sometimes, but he'll figure it out.
3: Yeah, I'm still pretty high on him overall. I mean, he's getting the strikeouts. He still has what look like above-average pitches all around. So just got to throw them strikes, like you said.
1: So on that note, I'll introduce our guest for this episode, for this edition of On the Verge, He is the resident uh, draft expert at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. You can see some of his work on there, previewing the 2021 MLB draft. He also previously worked as an analyst in baseball research and development for the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, In addition to reading his articles on the site, you can also hear him as a co-host, along with Chris Stoner and Matt Corey on The Warehouse, a fellow podcast um, here on Baltimore Sports & Life Radio Network. He is Dr. Stephen Loftus. Uh, Stephen? uh we're glad to have you back on thank you for joining us tonight
0: it's good to be here it's good to really start talking about the draft as you all know this is my area and so things are starting to heat up in that area you know, we're halfway through it all and so i'm really looking forward to uh just talking about it with you all for the next well however long it takes
1: well uh, yeah we'll uh have a lot of discussion tonight and i'm sure that between now and july we're gonna have you on the show again but just to start off um How is the pandemic affecting the uh, lead-up to this year's draft in both the college and high school levels?
0: So I think it's going to be affecting the high school levels a bit more. I mean, we lost a lot of high-profile showcases, a lot of high-profile bats that weren't able to travel in arms, that weren't able to travel from, say, California for East Coast Pro and stuff like that. We lost the National High School Invitational, usually held in Cary in March, so... and even beyond that, just individual school districts, individual areas, not necessarily playing as extensive of a season. And high school players don't have the benefit that college guys have with data. I mean, college guys, even if we're not getting as many uh, cross-conference matchups, early season tournaments, things like that, the data is still there for them. The uh, pitch FX type of data, the exit velo data, all of that is still there, even if it's maybe I don't want to say less reliable, but even if there isn't as much of it there for us to rely on. So it makes making really uh, concrete decisions really difficult. From a modeling perspective, from my point of view, there's a lot more variability in the possible outcomes, so there's a lot more variance in it takes a lot longer for players to really start separating themselves from the pack or really advancing up boards. We're going to probably, we're going to mention Jack Leiter at some point or another. Right now he's ninth on the model's output because he only has about 60 collegiate innings. And the way I model things, there's more trust, more reliance, the more collegiate innings you have. Usually by this point, he would have Uh, give or take what 100 110 innings so by the time he gets to that point he'll he'll rocket up the boards but right now he's going to seem a little bit lower because of how the pandemic has messed with um like the inputs in my model
2: so you mentioned jack lighter i mean let's we're talking about specific players let's kind of start there with him and his teammate kumar rocker uh i think for the past year or so kumar rocker has been regarded as the favorite to go one one uh, for a while now, but do you see that changing with the way Jack Leiter's throwing this year? Uh, and maybe is there someone else that might sneak in as a possible 1-1? But specifically, what do what you see with Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter right now and their prospects for
0: 1-1? With the two of them, it's going to be a 1-1-A situation. If a team decides to go the Jordan Lawler route or Marcelo Meyer route, or I suppose someone else. You know, we're only halfway through all this, but if they go someone else, it's really going to be an underslot sort of pick. I think it's either going to be lighter or rocker at one, and it comes down to a certain extent down to uh, rockers just raw stuff versus lighter's pitchability. Like you know, lighter's got great stuff, but rockers got everything a tick more. Whether we're you know where we're talking plus stuff for lighter or you know, half plus sort of thing, we might be talking plus plus with Rocker in terms of just literal raw stuff. Now, Rocker does have some questions with command, not necessarily control, but from a pure command perspective, which kind of brings them a little bit back to the pack. Me, I'll almost always bet on just pure raw stuff over command, but not by much. The fact that Leiter has even made it a possibility, even made it a discussion, is something I wasn't exactly expecting this year. I was expecting, you know, yeah, Leiter was going to be a top five guy, but I didn't think he would honestly be able to play himself. And he's really had to play himself. I didn't think he'd be able to play himself into that r- number one discussion, but he has. And it's going to really come down to, I mean, there's a lot of good games remaining for Vanderbilt left in the year for the two of them to really, and even in just an SEC play, uh, for them to really start trying to separate one from the other. Plus then there's the you know the college world series playoff sort of uh, into things. And it's going to, it might come down to the last week and it might come down to the college world series. And I would think Vanderbilt probably will be going there with those two arms leading the way. But at this moment, if the draft were today, I would still, you know, separate of bonus concerns, separate of underslotting, overslotting. However, I would probably lean Rocker, but just by the barest of margins.
3: Uh, Follow up to that. Is there any worry about Rocker's velocity the last couple of weeks? I know he's been down sitting between 90 and 93 whereas before he's been mid to upper 90s. I'm not worried yet. You know, if it keeps on going, yeah, there you know, Vanderbilt,
0: Vanderbilt might uh pull him for a few weeks, you know, make sure give him the medical end of things. But teams are going to have that information. I mean, you know, the top 50 or so uh players usually have their medicals sent around to all the various teams and that's where you start seeing things especially with you know a pitcher that is a power pitcher like rocker i mean pretty much every pitcher is going to have a tommy john sort of situation something go wrong with the ucl at some point or another so they're always going to check those medicals it's going to be a very careful thing i remember in 2017 with the rays uh we were looking at drew rasmussen who had just come just in like maybe a month before the draft, come back from Tommy John. And there was a lot of discussion over those medicals. And if Rocker's velocity still kind of continues to be a little on the downside, comparatively speaking, I mean, he's coming from a pretty high place to begin with there.
3: Sure,
0: yeah. Teams are going to be on top of those medicals, searching through them, having the staff in there, and you know, they'll do their due diligence. At the moment, I'm not worried just yet, but that could be the thing that uh, ticks uh, ticks lighter
3: over him at number one. Yeah, so we basically we know the big four, the top four that seem like they're going to go right before the Orioles pick at five, which is Lawler, Lighter, um, Rocker, and M- Mayor. But according to your model, who are some of the top two or three biggest risers to pay attention to now that we're getting into the heart of conference play?
0: so this is a this is a really interesting spot because there's a so in my view there is that top four tier you know the two vanderbilt guys and two high school shortstops and that's going to really that's what teams love big arms high school shortstops with a lot of room to grow after that there's a lot of variations that the orioles can go off of and the thing is a lot of them are routes that the orioles haven't really pursued in the past you know the last few years, we start thinking about you know corner bats, especially corner outfield, a lot of power. Who cares about strikeouts to a, a certain extent? But that guy really isn't quite there. I mean, we'll probably talk about Sal relic a little bit, but I he, there's he's he's cooled down a little bit in the last few weeks. There's a few worries there. The guys that have risen in to the top for my model that are right there that are within that sort of range where they could be considered at five are um, Henry Davis, catcher out of Louisville who has just been on fire and has an incredible cannon for an arm. There are questions about his receiving ability, maybe a little bit, but with the way that uh, baseball seems to be going with the, you know, the advent of the robot strike zone, as it were, you know, framing might not be an issue and catcher defense suddenly becomes about blocking and a cannon for an arm. And Davis has that along with a bat that no question can play behind. It can play anywhere, but especially behind the plate. So he's one guy there. Um, Gunnar Hoagland out of uh, Mississippi, he's been the player who's improved his stock the most. I mean, he has rocketed up uh, Baseball America's rankings up about 10 spots since the start of the year. In my model, he's added a full win, 10 runs worth of score. He's, uh, where is he now? He's seventh in my model at this point. Um, And he's striking out guys at an incredible rate and walking, you know, he's matching lighter basically in strikeout rate with about half the walks. I mean, his, he's, we're working a six-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio with Hoagland, and he's doing it against that SEC competition. So, but again, that's not a route the Orioles have really taken. Um, another guy that's uh, been a big riser, really interesting to watch because he comes from a smaller conference is the uh, is Sam Bachman. And, you know, he's I don't want to say he's coming out of nowhere, but, I mean, the huge jump that he's made, I mean, in my model, going from 49th to 17th, I mean, improving by eight, nine runs, that's hard to do in a mid-major sort of setting there because you have to not only, uh, you have not only have to perform well, but honestly, you have to dominate that competition because, you know, I do all of my adjustments to bring back the kind of mid-conference high performers due to the, you know, strength of schedule into things, but he's continued after a certain point. You just got to respect the stuff, respect the stats, and Bachman has that he might have a bit of a ceiling on him just due to that competition and due to that, uh, you know, kind of questions that are going to come with that. But if, I mean, if, uh, my sorry, not say I said, Ohio, Joe rocks from Ohio. He's another riser. That's, uh, come out there. Miami Bachman's from Miami, Miami of Ohio. Um, but if Miami, Ohio can get into the, uh, you know, NCAA tournament can get into some postseason, and Bachman can really, uh, put up that same type of performance against some bigger conferences that could open a lot of eyes that could really push them into that next level and into an interesting spot. So there, I mean, there's tons of other risers, but those three are three that are really interesting around that number five spot, depending on how the Orioles really want to attack this. And I mean, again, there's just so many routes that they could go because the traditional kind of guy that it seems like they've uh, particularly uh, focused on this year isn't really there. Or in Frelick's case, my model has a few questions about his, uh, his numbers and his, uh, his ability to stick in a few places. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: So the one thing I think that is kind of coming together as a consensus a little bit seems to be that in some order, the top four prospects are Rocker, Leiter, Lawler, and Mare. Um, is there any chance that Jordan Lawler or Marcelo Mare fall to the number five spot for the Orioles? There's a chance. Um, it, if the draft were
0: today, I'd give it maybe about like a 33%, 40% chance. If they fall, it's probably going to be for similar sort of reasons that the Orioles might pass on them the whole underslot question. Because if they fall to five, they're not going to take a discount. They're, they're just not. And so that would require um, – Elias and them to pay up, possibly overslot for the Orioles, which has not been a route that they've traditionally gone. Now, um, you know, there's lots of discussions, lots of thoughts about if Elias and Majal are really going to go that overslot route or would even consider it just based on past history, both with the Orioles and the Astros. But in general, Elias and Majal are going, I have confidence that they will make the quote unquote right pick. If they'll right pick, based on what their model says, what they think they can build later on, what they can put together later in the draft. If the right pick is to overslot, they'll go overslot. If the right pick is to take a pitcher, probably more likely a collegiate pitcher. High school pitchers are just incredibly risky, and pretty much any model is going to really knock them back. Um, But if it's a pitcher, they'll take a pitcher. I trust them to make the right pick. And so, again, there's a chance that Lawler and Mayer, one or the other, falls to the Orioles. If it's Lawler, I think there's a uh, higher chance that they would actually take a shot at that. But even if they do fall, it's going to be a real, real tough question. I mean, for me, my model has has both Lawler and Mayer as the number one and two. The model loves high school shortstops, especially high school shortstops who can hit which is the uh, book, especially on Lawler, and assuming they can stick at shortstop, and they both have the tools, no question, to stick at shortstop. Um, the um, right now, the model likes Mayor just a tick more, but honestly, it's there's enough variability that you could go either
1: one, and the model would be fine with that sort of thing. Just one quick follow-up question to that is: Would the fact that they high school prospects maybe make the Orioles pause because that timeline for contention? could conceivably be within the next two years i've thought about that that that's something that i brought up actually
0: uh last week on the warehouse where the high school shortstop or any high school pick is probably on a different timeline and that's a valid question but i don't think it would really drive them away it would have to be literally the third or fourth tiebreaker basically for them to push that away because you could also look at the same sort of thing if the orioles start contending in the window at the next you know, three years, maybe, hopefully, cross fingers, um, then Lawler or Mayer could be the type of guy that continues that window as they're having to make harder decisions on free agency, on guys that you know started out in that contending window, but now are moving on or getting too expensive or things like that. So there are multiple different ways that you can go on it. I don't think it would drive them away necessarily unless they were just really picking nits at that point.
3: Is a guy like Brady house in the same stratosphere as those two, or is he a step below step below, but the high school shortstops, the top of the high school shortstops
0: this year is incredibly strong. I mean, there's five projected in the first round between Lawler and Meyer, you know, right at the top Brady house and Khalil Watson. So there's, um, I I was, you know, taking a look at videos on YouTube today, just looking over, uh, looking over the guys before in preparation for today's podcast. and, Khalil Wilson has just incredibly fast hands, incredible bat speed, and he hit just an absolute monster of a home run, turning on an inside pitch on the le- from the left side, just, you know, pulling it out to right field. Beautiful, beautiful swing. And he generated an incredible amount of pop. I mean, uh, say did I say Wilson or Watson? <laughs> All these names are starting to run together. I think it's Khalil <laughs> Watson. Um yeah. Khalil Watson, um, he's like he's 5'9, but that bat speed, you know, is able to so much make up for the lack of you know traditional power size that you expect to see there. So the two of them, and then Isaac Pacheco is further on down in the 20s, but you know, we're looking at like a 6'4, 210 type of guy. Big, big, pretty left-handed swing. There are a couple of good left-handed bats at shortstop this year that again, not the same stratosphere as Lawler and Meyer, but incredible talents. And the teams that get them that decide to go that high school route are going to get a lot of bang for their buck, no matter where they pick those guys, especially if they can continue to uh, move along as the season's going on. Brady House, there are going to be some questions because it's of all of those guys. He's the one that there's the question, if he'll stay at short, there's a little bit more thought that He's going to move off it to third, but, I mean, he comes with se- with possible future 70 power, so, you know, who can complain about that if he does move off short? I mean, like, that'll play at third. That'll absolutely play at third.
2: Nice. I think that was a pretty good recap of the high school guys. I mean, I, I think I've had a chance to watch at least once most of the guys like the top hundred, the college players, but it's good to get info on the high school guys. And I just want to shout out at Locked On Orioles who asked kind of about, I hope I think you answered a lot of these questions that we got from, from some of our Twitter followers, but Locked On Orioles who asked which high school players we targeted this year, a lot of great shortstops there. Um, are there any other high school names out there that you see going in that first round or maybe as maybe early round targets for the Orioles.
0: So it's going to be real tough. I don't necessarily see the Orioles going high school unless Lawler or Meyer falls, or if someone does make a jump later on, there's still a lot of other first round names that aren't necessarily shortstops. There are a few pitchers in the uh, like, you know, 15 to 20 range. Uh, Let's see. Um, One of them's a, let's see, who is it? Uh, Bubba Chandler is a uh, Clemson recruit uh, for football and baseball. So he'd be a hard sign, but, He's been a huge riser. He's moved up 70 spots in Baseball America's latest ranking updates, and has similarly moved way on up the model. But he's a pitcher, so there's obviously questions there. Uh, high school catching is surprisingly uh, surprisingly deep this year. There are a couple of guys ranked in the back end of the first round, and I mean, high school catchers. One of them's a guy who's got like 65, 70 sort of speed, which for a catcher, I mean, that'll play. I mean, you could move him out to center field with that sort of speed, assuming he's able to read the ball. But the only guy that could be interesting. And I've thought a little bit about him now and now and again is uh, James Wood. So corner outfield guy, or at least I, I tend to think he's going to wind out in the corner outfield. But I mean, huge dude, like six, six, two thirty ish, give or take a lot of power. There's a bit of swing and miss in the game That's generally, of course, is going to come with the power, but he moves fairly well. And there's a thought that he might be able to stick in center field. And if you got a 6'6 six, six power hitter, power hitting center field who moves like, you know, we're not talking 70 grade speed or anything, but we're looking, let's see, a 6'7, six, 60 yard dash. So, I mean, that's, I say that's well above average speeds, you know, 55, maybe, you know, push it to 60, depending. But if that can stick in center field, that's an incredibly elite talent. So, right now, he's just outside the top 10. He started uh, the season. Ranked in the top 10 by Baseball America. The model loves, especially, uh, you know, physically mature high school guys, no matter where they are on the field. But if he can stick in center field, that's one other guy that could be interesting. The swing and miss is a little worrisome, which is, again, why I don't necess- necessarily see the Orioles jumping on a player like that unless he really goes, is willing to go for an underslot. But he's probably the other high school guy besides. Um, you know, the shortstops that could possibly go in the top 10.
2: So let's switch gears to the college level and let's talk about South Relic. Um, I think he's a guy that I've been hearing a lot more of, maybe just in preparation for the show, I've been noticing the name more, but um, he seems to be a guy. I know MLB Pipeline talked about him a lot recently saying, you know, because of a lot of the college bats seem to be not producing as well, maybe so far this year, but Frelick did have that hot start. So maybe you see him rise up the draft boards a little bit, you know, is Sal Frelick a guy outfielder out of Boston college for, for anyone that may not know. Um, Is he a guy that the Orioles would look at as far as like saving a little bit of money there, or is he going to cost about, you know, that bonus slot money? Is this a guy that the Orioles should target with the number five
1: pick?
0: I would give him a look. I I would absolutely give him a look. He might've played himself out of the, assuming the Orioles want to go that under slot route. Like if they're willing to pay slot, I think it'd be fine. But if they're trying to go under really save money, he might've played himself out of that. Like he's moved up to six in baseball America. My model's not as high on him because he's cooled down. So literally in the last two weeks, he's gone like six for 29 with only a single extra base hit. And that's not going to look good. Like that doesn't play particularly. And that's really reined him in. I mean, Heck one week ago, I'm pretty sure I had him. So right now the model has him 24th a week ago. When I, uh, did the first update of the model since the preseason, I think I had him about mm, 16th. So just that two week span really knocked him back a lot, but a lot can change obviously in a two week span. If he's able to get back up there, he's a guy that I'd consider. I mean, he's most likely going to stick in center field. He's got more power than his size would necessarily. Again, he's, 180 one eighty-ish, give or take. Um, and he's got a lot more power than you would necessarily expect. He's got some speed. He's got a little bit, a little bit of pop. He can definitely play in center field. Again, up the middle. If you can get a little, if you can get a little bit of pop, some power, and decent defense in center field, sure, that's absolutely a top ten sort of pick and a type of guy that the Orioles can absolutely work with, especially given the many options. But again, with those many options, if there isn't a standout player. If the Orioles don't see a standout player, go for the guy that will, you know, provide you the most amount of uh, cost benefit sort of thing. You know, the guy that can give you that same sort of level of expected production, but, you know, take 800,000, a million less necessarily. And I'm not sure if Frelick's going to be that guy, especially if he continues to produce. Yes.
2: And he's uh, he's making, I was looking at some of his numbers earlier today too. And 49 walks to just 37 strikeouts in 84 career games is pretty, pretty impressive.
3: I like that. That would be a switch for the Orioles. Yeah. Yeah. That would look good in our lineup right about now. Um, (laughs) We talk a lot about Elias uh, being a big fan of up the middle college bats from major conferences. Is there enough sample size to really get a read on this front office's draft strategy? So it's really interesting from the perspective of up the middle major conference
0: bat. There certainly is enough sample size because, frankly, everyone loves that. Everyone loves the up the middle guy because of the defensive spectrum. If you got the guy that can play shortstop, he can move to second base, third base as need be, assuming that you know the bat plays center field. If the bat is good enough, it, but they really can't stick it in center ball, center field, you know, move them to the corners as long as the bat can play. And you know, major conferences, of course, like that's where you're going to see the best collection of talent. Those guys are going to go to the Cape. They're going to go to the Northwoods league. They're going to go to those major summer leagues and they're going to see that elite competition. So there is a certain level of trust there with those big conference bats. So yeah, there's enough sample size for that. What there isn't enough sample size really to see at this point is deviations from that. Because again, everyone loves that sort of end of things, you know, over the years, Cleveland has been known to love young guys. You know, they are a model, driven team. They do an excellent job with it for the most part. But one of the key things that people have noticed is young guys. Well, I mean, everyone's on that same sort of track, but Cleveland takes it to an even more extent. Orioles, same sort of thing. They like young guys. They like major conference power bats. Everyone does, but we don't have enough information to really see where the deviations are. The closest really to it is their lack of worry about strikeouts, I guess you could say. Like, you know, they lean power they lean. I would say they tend to lean power over hit. And again, up to a certain extent, don't worry about the strikeouts. So that's the only sample size that we really have some, intra- some uh, indication on. And it not only extends to college, but I think it extends to high school too. If you look at like Kobe Mayo from last year, big power, not as advanced of a hit tool, and probably will strike out a fair bit, but
3: they're not concerned about that. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, we also had a question from Twitter from at Pdubs80 who said, based on Elias and Sig's draft history and reliance on their own draft model, which players in a draft best fit the model darling quote unquote moniker that would be likely picks at number five if av- available and even throughout the top few rounds? And he does note that the O's have four of the top 76 picks.
0: Okay. So generally speaking, again, it seems like the Orioles, you know, power over hit strikeouts not a big worry ideally yeah up the middle and if it's cl- if it's college major conference bats so you know from my perspective like in my models case you know i like similar sort of things you know physically mature high school guys so you think guys like you know James Wood like Brady House you like young players like you know Judd Fabian's a big name that's been mocked to the Orioles several times if he was having a better year i would be pretty heavily in on him as the Orioles pick not necessarily because I'm as big on him, but because I think that matches the Orioles profile. But I mean, you know, Judd Fabian's, let's see, on draft day, he's going to be still 20 in about eh, 10 months, give or take. He's not going to turn 21 until around August, I want to say. And again, power performance is another big one. So this is one guy that I know, you know, in the questions that you all sent me to kind of prep, Colton Cowser is one of those big power performers, both in terms of, um, you know, from, from batter's perspective, power in terms of ISO. And then pitchers, you know, what we see, high strikeout type of guys. So Colton cowser uh, Luca Tresh, again, I've mentioned a lot of catchers. It's a decent year for catchers, kind of surprisingly, but um, Colton Couser, Luca Tresh, Wes Clark, all of those are big bats, but really, you know, kind of pick by pick per se. Round one, like everyone's on the table. I mean, Davis, cowser all the college pitching, Brady, everyone's on the table on that one at this point because there isn't, you know, honestly, because Judd Fabian has kind of fallen back a little bit. Cowser's kind of the closest one to fitting that profile, but there are going to be some questions, again, about that sort of uh, mid-major sort of uh, competition. Round two, last few years, it's been an infielder, someone on the dirt, middle infielder. He's not a mi- middle infielder, but Zach Galoff out of uh, University of Virginia is kind of an interesting guy there. He's been on the rise, you know, most... Uh, scouting services have him right you know in the 30s maybe upper 20s my model likes him right around that same range give or take so he's a guy that could be really interesting in round two and the comp b round three sort of thing um this is where you could start seeing a couple of pitchers maybe there's a lot i mean honestly there's a lot of prep bats out there if they want to go high school there's honestly too many options to really narrow it down this year it's so deep in college pitching they could pretty much go all sorts of routes um in terms of like you know High strikeout pitchers: Will Bedner, Sean Burke. Uh, Burke's out of uh, Maryland, at that I believe. Um, you know, all these guys are you know big strikeout guys that would seem to play well in a model. One guy that's kind of fallen off the wayside that I still sort of believe in as a possible Orioles guy is Cody Morissette at a Boston College shortstop. You know, fits that big conference, middle infielder type. He doesn't have any standout tools, which is kind of the difference between him and some of the uh, previous guys. But he's he's the type of guy that's got all 50s and 55s across the board and kind of tends to uh, get more out of his tools than you'd expect. He's had a rough year this year. He started to turn around the last couple of weeks. Um, he's striking out a bit more. I tried to find video on him last year and this year to see if he possibly changed his swing any, but I couldn't really get any good angles to really dig into that. But, if his strikeouts weren't up so much, he'd be putting the same sort of you know batting three thirty with about a two hundred iso so um up there, so I mean he's gotta come back a little bit, but he's a guy that if he's there in the fifties and he's you know turned things a little bit around this year and not batting two forty, which is about where he is now two sixty if he turns that around, he's a guy that I could see also in that round two range as being a maybe not a model darling, but one that kind of follows the Orioles' pension, especially around that round two, 30, 40, 45 range sort of thing.
1: So we have another question from Twitter, at Orioles tweets. Do you think Elias and Sieg employ a similar draft philosophy with the O's as they did with the Astros? And then um, at Orioles tweets goes on to elaborate. My impression is they were burned so badly by Appel and Aiken, and had such success with Bregman and Correa that I have a hard time seeing them pick a pitcher with a high draft pick. So what are your thoughts there? Do you think that that's uh, something to be said for that? Uh, To a certain extent. I think I I agree that it's
0: probably less likely that they would pick a pitcher with a high pick, but I don't really think it has anything or as much necessarily to do with being burned by Appel and Aiken. So really – Trying in, in some ways, I sometimes think we look at the Astros too much to try to glean too much information on Elias and Majal's past. I mean, it's kind of like – because every ownership situation is different. It would be like with the current uh, Houston – GM, you know, James Click, my former boss down with the Rays, trying to understand what he's going to do there based on his time in Tampa Bay. The ownership situation there is different. The resources there are going to be different, not only financial, but also data resources. The extent to which there is scouting and analytic cooperation is going to be different. And while the GM can, yes, drive that discussion. There are always going to be outside voices that they didn't necessarily bring in, sometimes from ownership, sometimes from coaching staff, that are going to really complicate the kind of driving end of things. So, But let's look back at the Astros, what they did. So a lot of the Astros trends were mimicked or mirrored, mimics the wrong term, were mirrored, were seen at the same time by a lot of different organizations, the Cubs, the Rays, the Dodgers. A lot of these teams kind of went on that same sort of routes. Cleveland's another one as well, like focusing on bats because bats generally speaking are going to put up more value especially college bats where we have more information up the middle you know downplaying uh let's see uh downplaying just arms in general at the top focusing on age all of this are things that a lot of the analytically forward organizations tended to do and at this point it's pretty consistent across the board so again i don't necessarily think that looking at houston specifically is going to give us too much information. Like the thing that the Astros were kind of more ahead of the curve on or ahead of the mindset on was the whole idea of the underslot and using that and pushing that down, uh, pushing that money down the line to spreading it out. But every organization is now in on that. So again, I think we look a little bit too much at the Astros and really should look a bit more at overall baseball trends as a whole, especially among the more analytically forward organizations. But again, I said this earlier. I trust Elias to make the right pick. Two years ago, when Adley Rechman was up there at the top, they didn't mess around with that. They didn't think about underslotting. They took the best player. So if Rocker or Lighter, for some reason, you know, didn't have arm trouble, say Rocker's velocity comes back, continues to put up numbers. If Lighter continues to put up numbers and they fall to five, there's going to be a lot of discussion there because at that point, you know, there is less idea, um, you know, Pitcher value is a harder thing to quantify, a less consistent thing. Rocker and Lighter are still going to want big money in that sort of way. So the discussion really gets interesting there: whether you then go for an underslot, spread the money around, or do you go for the best player available, like that mindset usually is. And but it's not going to be because um, Carlos Correa turned out well in Houston, or because um, Appel and Aiken fell apart. It's going to be because it's ultimately the quote-unquote right pick based on overarching overall trends that pretty much the majority of analytically forward teams will be working off of. So there is some of that, uh, you know, look at the Astros, but in doing so, I think we're focusing too much. Look on baseball as a whole. So, again, it's not – we can get some information there, but, again, I just trust them to make the right pick, whether that's an overslot, an underslot, a pitcher, or – Taking Henry Davis's catcher, even if we have Adley Rutschman, the best catcher that we've seen in, you know, best young catcher that we've seen in a long, long time. If that's the right pick, they'll do
3: it. So that pretty much answers Jason's uh, question here. Will the Orioles draft the best available guy, or just draft for need? And I think they're going to draft the best available guy.
0: Best available with the um, with the uh, note that cost considerations come into play like you know i don't think they're going to be drafting for need not not but you don't do that in baseball you don't draft for need because even the best players are three years down the line and who knows what you're going to need in three years but yeah much closer to the best player available
1: so i wanted to uh talk about Gunnar hoagland for a minute because he was someone you mentioned early in the show as someone as a riser you talked about him last week on baltimoresportsandlife.com if I'm thinking that this is the year the Orioles buck the recent trend under Michael Elias and they take a pitcher with that first pick, it's Hogan a guy I should be looking at.
0: Absolutely, like he, he brings so much that you really want to see. Like you know, he's got a starting pitcher's frame. We're looking six four two twenty. That type of that type of body can stick up to. All of the you know the starter workload, even maybe you know the, there's the whole old school starter workload, and you know who knows what starters are going to look like or what Major League Baseball is going to um, rule and legislate. I mean, I don't know if y'all saw recently the whole idea of possibly the uh, um, the double hook, the whole thing of when you pull your starting pitcher, you lose the DH, and that could maybe mess with how teams value starting pitchers. But Hoagland can stand up to a starter's workload in today's baseball, and I think you know down the line as well. Now. As you know, he brings up the stats like he he strikes out guys, he's striking around 40% of guys, walks a little under 10%. So, like, he's putting up a great strikeout to walk ratio. He's even seen a slight um, tick up in. A slight tick up in velocity this year, like uh, before the year, they were talking like topping out at 93. Most of the guns that I've seen them at, you know, we're not topping out, working at 93, topping out at 95, 96. Most of the guns I've seen them this year have, them, you know, working around 94, 95, topping out still again, 96. I think I've seen 97 once, give or take. Um, he has got a 55 slider, but really he gets a lot of strikeouts, a lot of swing and miss off of his fastball, which is pretty impressive considering it's not like a hundred mile an hour thing. Like it's got good movement, good ride. It has all that you'd want to see out of a starter's fastball. He complements it well with that slider. You know, he'd fit in well in the system. No question from a player development perspective, because any pitcher, especially pitchers, in my opinion, come in needing a lot of care from the player development point of view. So from p- player development, if we can add a little bit more velo consistently, like you've seen a tick up again, 90, I say 93, 94, 95 is most of his working stuff. If that could become more consistent, that'd be great. Um, tighten up the slider just a bit. And really key one is developing a changeup, not to be an out pitch or anything like that, but be a legitimate third offering to make batters respect the fastball even more than they already do. So he's a guy that could absolutely fit in the system. And he's a guy that, assuming he's willing to go for the right price, could be a good guy for the Orioles to really kind of focus in on, assuming they're willing to admittedly take on the risk of the lower production that pitchers generically have and the uh, extra injury risk that is just ever present with pitchers.
2: So we'll go from SEC pitcher to mid-major bat. And let's talk about Colton Cowser. You mentioned him earlier. Looking at some of his numbers now, for people who may not know, Sam Houston State outfielder. Right now he's hitting 351, 12 home runs. Again, more walks and strikeouts. would love to see that. 24 walks to 23 strikeouts. Uh, but a 6-3 lefty at the Southland Conference. I know it's not a baseball powerhouse. Uh, so those those numbers take them with a grain, a little bit of a grain of salt there. The more I read about Kowser, I see a lot of, you know, maybe he doesn't really have that line, or he has more of a line drive swing instead of a home run swing. Uh, And maybe he probably doesn't stick at center field or you probably have to move him off the position there. The arm may not be as good based on some of the things that I've seen. I haven't watched him play. I think he's the top prospect. I have not watched anything on yet. So that's just all reading what (laughs) what I see from other people who are less smarter than me. But he's the guy that I'm most fascinated with at this point, maybe because I haven't seen him. Um, I guess, what are your general thoughts on on Kowser as being a possible option? Within that, you know, top five, top six range.
0: Five would be tough, and not because he doesn't necessarily have the talent. I mean, you know, he's got enough speed. I think, I think he can cover center field. I think, you know, I don't think he'd be a Gold Glove guy, um, or even necessarily an incredibly above average. But I think he could turn in an average center field. He has decent enough roots from all the reports, and enough speed to make it work. He's got, you know, solid power, even, you know, he's raked. And as you said, he's raked in the Southland conference, but like, even when you adjust for the fact that it's the Southland conference, he's still one of my uh, top guys in terms of adjusted ISO and, you know, adjusting it for competition, adjusting it for um, ballpark, that sort of thing. He still is one of those top guys. So the challenge is. Again, kind of the ceiling—the ceiling that the mid-major conferences really bring, in a sense. From it, from a modeling perspective, from a statistical po- uh, point of view. Right now, uh, let's see. Model has him at where is he right now? I know he's okay. He's oh, he's higher than I thought. He's had a good last week. I did a little adjustment on the model. Um, I had him as a pure corner outfielder and made a little adjustment, saying that he does have a chance of sticking in center field. That moved him up from like I want to say low twenties to he's now 11th in the model. So the model loves that power, loves that ability, or at least that chance to stick in center field. And assuming if he can stick in center field again, he's the type of guy that brings all you could want in a center field and more, you know, solid enough defense, a decent hit tool, not quite a uh, plus power, but you know, above average power, you know, 55, something like that. And again, all of that at a premium position. So to really get into that number five discussion, unless he is just willing to take an insane cut, and the uh, Orioles don't necessarily think he's too much of a downgrade in production talent, however you want to call it. Assuming those two things, he's going to have to, he's going to have to continue to perform. He's going to have to continue to hit at this incredibly hot rate, and he might need a little help. He might need a little help from a couple of pitchers, not even necessarily falling, but not. You know, he's going to need Jordan Wicks to not just continue to just knock it out of the park. He's going to need Adrian Del Castillo to kind of falter just a little bit. He's going to need that little bit of help to really push him into that true number five overall discussion, in my opinion, just because there's unless, you know, some, you know, all things being equal, there's going to be some questions about that mid-major conference uh, profile.
3: All right. So, um. At Ben underscore underscore divorced, uh had a question the same lo- along the same lines as uh, as I do right here, which is despite the injuries and missed time while at LSU, is Jaden Hill still someone worth targeting in the second round or so if he's still around? If he's still around, yeah, sure. Like he's looked horrible this year. He he, he did not
0: look good in his last few starts. No question. But surprise, there's the Tommy John issue. And I mean, who would look good with the Tommy John issue sort of coming up? It's the type of thing that when you look at performance and stats after, okay, he's towards UCL or something like that, it's like, ah, it all makes sense. He's absolutely a guy that if he was available in that second round pick, absolutely start paying attention to him right there. If he was willing to sign, he's the type of guy that, you know he had top five stuff. He was a number, you know, top five overall ranked guy coming into the year. And had he continued at this pace, he would, you know, maybe not be at the same tier as, you know, continue at the pace that his stuff at least, uh, suggests maybe not in the same tier as rocker and lighter, but right there. And so asking him to take number 40 money is a tough ask when he absolutely could recover, come back and, uh, regain his status at that top 10 pick because i mean he might some some people think he has the best like pure stuff in the draft and you know yes there were concerns he you know went into the bullpen last year there's a question about can he handle the workload especially now after the tommy john into things but he i mean he's got a starters build he's he's got plus secondaries he's got everything you'd want from a front line um you know top one number one number two starter and getting him to take a discount at number 40 might be really tough. I don't tend to think he's going to make it there. I tend to think he will. Someone will take a shot at him in the first round, you know, late first round, somewhere in the 20s, because the stuff, the talent is hard, would be hard to overlook even with the questions that come with it. So I don't think he's there, but if he's there at 40 and he's shown, you know, because teams talk to players, teams have an idea of what players are asking when they make that pick. If he shows any indication to just wanting to get signed by a major league organization getting that process started getting on you know a good medical staff to help with the rehab help redevelop all that and he's willing to take that pay cut and he's there in that second round pick Orioles should absolutely look at him no question
1: full stop so let me follow up real quick on Jaden hill um For a number of years, because I worked for the Washington Nationals for a while, and for a number of years, the Nationals were the organization that was willing to take the gamble on the guy who was high ceiling coming off of Tommy John surgery. Um, And they did that with Lucas Giolito. They did that with Matt Perk. Um, They've taken their chances. Is there a team that's kind of in that mold that you could see taking a chance on Hill somewhere in the late teens or the 20s this year? Uh, late teens. Who's in the late teens? Uh, I'm you know I'm
0: so focused on the Orioles these days that uh, let's see draft. Not I don't care if the NFL draft is in a week. I want the MLB draft order. <laughs> um, let's see first round here. Late teens. We've got Blue Jays, Marlins, maybe. Hmm. That that might be interesting. The Marlins might be interesting. Blue Jays. I could see the Yankees. I could see. I could really see the Yankees taking that shot. You know, just from the high upside ceiling point of view, I, I the Yankees are sticking in my mind on that one. That I say, as much as I hate to say it, um, that seems that seems like an organization that would be willing to take that risk because we've seen so many pitchers be able to come back from Tommy John. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, maybe their stuff's back a little bit. You know, maybe Jordan Hill isn't all plus secondaries. Maybe he's down to a plus and an above average. But still, as long as he can keep the velocity, and you know. We've seen pitchers, you know, do fine regaining velocity, assuming that he could absolutely come back and be fine. So, yeah, I th- I think the Yankees might be one of those organizations that could take that shot in again in that teens sort of range, assuming he's willing to take the pick cut, which I would question like he has so much stuff and it's and I think he can come back next year and really establish himself as a top 10 pick if he does come back.
3: Yeah, Yankees or Dodgers will take him. He'll get completely healthy and be an ace. Exactly. <laughs>
2: I just want to hear what the Ben McDonald broadcasts after the Orioles do take Jaden Hill. <laughs> oh yeah, he'd be psyched. Um, That'd I'm be fun. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Baseball America's latest mock draft. They had the Orioles taking Miami's Adrian Del Castillo, you know, a catcher. Uh, you highlighted Louisville's Henry Davidson. Your recent article at baltimoresportslife.com. dot uh, com. You know, I like the on base ability of Del Castillo. I like the bats, the defensive versatility. Uh, It's easy to fall in love with Davis' bat when you watch him play. Uh, But I think just for Orioles fans who see catcher next to a potential pick, and maybe especially as we get closer to draft time, if Del Castillo is still being mocked there, if Davis is mocked there, Luca Tresh might be mocked there, uh, what would you say to Orioles fans who raise their hand and say, excuse me, we do have Adley Rutschman. Uh, What are these guys going to bring to the organization, and why would the Orioles target uh, a guy like this in the first round?
0: I mean, sometimes you just got to take the best player. You really do just with how much uncertainty there is in baseball and catcher, especially, you know, other than pitchers, catchers are going to be just the toughest to a project, how they're going to do. They sometimes take longer to develop even top, even, you know, highly rated prospects. They get to the majors takes a few years for them to really get their feet under them. Now, again, Rudgman's possibly the best catcher we've seen in a dozen years, if not longer, but catcher I've heard so many times referred to as by writers, or maybe this is back in the day or to as the Dorian gray position. Like you look 20, but inside you're 150 sort of thing. Like you age so, so fast. Maybe that's going to, again, maybe that's going to change somehow with the new rules about how the strike zone is developed. Maybe they decide to mess with the catcher's box somehow. And some way of, you know, I, I don't know how it would necessarily, you know, increase offense, but they're really looking at anything these days. So maybe they mess with that somehow. And I mean, at some point, you need depth, and you just can't look. You can't turn away from the talent that is there. Like you, 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 this is baseball. You don't draft for need. You draft for talent. You draft for what you think you can develop. And if you think Davis is bad, is special enough to play at other places other than catcher, you know you draft it. If you think Del Castillo, um, from an odd base perspective, is going to be a lineup asset, and you know he comes at the right price, you take a shot at it. And again, I trust lies to make the right pick, and it could be that that right
3: pick is a catcher. That's a good answer. Uh, do we hold out any hope that Jordan Wicks with his changeup or Sam Bachman with his high quality stuff and hundred mile an hour fastball, make it out of the first round?
0: No, no, Sorry. I would love it. I would love to see it. I would, something would have to go wrong. <laughs> and at that point, then you'd have to start questioning you know, why did things go wrong? Like again, the, the whole second half of them would just have to go horrible. Like, they're both right now, possibly top 10 picks. You know, maybe you draft them at five and an underslide if you want to go that route, but you know, they're both impressive pitchers. They both have things. That I, uh, I love a pitcher with a good changeup, especially a lefty with a good changeup. Like, and so, I mean, like, Jordan Wicks is a guy that I wouldn't mind at five necessarily, assuming that you're going for that cost savings route but no way they make it again unless something goes horribly wrong in which case you have to start maybe asking why no chance they make it to the second round
3: all right as a follow-up who are some of the smaller school pitchers out there that we could pay attention to seeing as so far when Elias does go with pitching he seems to dig deep a little bit uh, as in Griffin McElardy in 2019
0: Okay, so this is actually a decent year for, you know, small school pitching. And you could, small schools is kind of hard to define these days. Sometimes it feels like, you know, small school is anything outside of the SEC and ACC at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there are a couple of UC Santa Barbara guys that uh, interest me. Um, so let's see, uh, Michael McCreevy is kind of, again, I don't know how much you consider UC Santa Barbara, you know, small school. They've had, they've had their successes, but let, let's say all, out of the uh, traditional Southeast Power Conference track. And um, especially, you know, on the East Coast, or at least I'm on the East Coast here, um, you might not see as much uh, Big West baseball. So, you know, Michael McCreevy ranked in the 50s, give or take, uh, and his uh, model score is much higher than that. Uh, Rodney Boone, his teammate, uh, I want to say Baseball America has him in like the 220s. My my model score has him around like 85th. And the reason why he's a performer, he's a college performer that uh, he kind of falls into the crafty lefty, you know, not not a big fastball, not big stuff but a lot of pitchability there and that works well in college and it's the type of thing that i could see the player development staff for the orioles really kind of building on um let's see who else we got in the kind of small school uh Matt, uh, let's see, Matt Mikulski out of Fordham, lefty. I have a thing for left-handed pitchers. I I don't know why. It, it just really interests me. I could never hit him when I was, uh, when I was young. So that might've been, that might be part of it. But, um, you know, he's got a four pitch arsenal, you know, curveball flashes plus, and he's got an ERA sub one and striking out uh 16.3 per nine, like 48% strikeout rate, you know, I mean, Fordham's no, you know, big shakes or anything like that, but eventually at some point you just got to go got to look at the stuff, look at the numbers and just say, you know, you just got to respect that. So uh, he's a guy that could be kind of interesting. He's been moving up uh, Baseball America's uh, boards. I want to say, let's see. Um, He's moved up. to He's 125th on Baseball America. He's moved up 50 spots. If he keeps on going, you know, he could be an interesting guy possibly at, uh, you know, like round, let's see, round three sort of uh, range if the Orioles want to go that route.
3: So I, oh, go ahead, Bob. Oh, no. I was just uh, saying that was good information. Um, so I know that we've got a good
1: bit of time left uh, between now and the draft. But so far, um, to this point, whose draft, uh, draft stock would you say has risen the most? And whose has uh, taken the sharpest dive uh, this spring?
0: So risen the most, I, I think it's got to be Luca Tresch. Catcher, North Carolina State. Uh, So, I mean, last year, North NC State had uh, Patrick Bailey behind the plate, you know, draft pick, all that sort of deal. And so Tresh gets behind the plate. And Tresh had been mostly functioning kind of as DH, occasionally catching. And his bat had played at DH fine. And he then comes in and just gets an incredibly hot start to the year, just absolutely raking in the non-conference schedule. He's done all right at catching, and he's got a few pass balls that are a little concerning, catching about a third of base dealers. You know, Henry Davis is catching half the base dealers, so it's kind of a high bar, but still like a third base, run, that, that's good enough. And he's continued to hit, but he's slowed down a little bit once uh, NC State hit conference play. So that's a little concerning, but from going from a, He's a bat, but can he catch, you know, rank him, like 125th overall sort of thing. He's now a top, he's now a top 25 guy. He's a first round sort of uh, talent possibly even. And now again, he's got to continue this. His recent kind of slowdown in ACC play does have at least me a little concerned if he can actually perform against elite pitching, or if he was just feasting on your mid major types. So he's got to continue to perform if he wants to stay in that first round range, but no one's jumped up more than him. No question falling off. So I'm going to stay in the ACC here. So Alex Benellis, Louisville third baseman. So at the start of the year before the, you know, as soon as baseball America released their ranking, he was a guy that I thought was, you know, picture perfect for the Orioles, you know, infield guy, you know, maybe he's got to move to first base, but there was enough hope that he could stick at third that, you know, you take that shot, major conference, big bat, some strikeouts, but again, Orioles aren't necessarily concerned about that. He seemed to be the tailor-made guy. He was at the time ranked like ninth overall. Um, And so with the Orioles at five, he seemed like a perfect guy. If he stayed in that, you know, nine, 10 range to be the underslot guy that the Orioles would focus on with a power, you know, conference bat, even if it wasn't up the middle. But he's fallen off. like he just hasn't really performed well. like, you know he's still got a two sixty iso. He is still still hitting with power, but it comes with a two thirty one batting average. And that's just that's just too much of a question mark, especially with you know, Orioles might not care about strikeouts. I do. and you know when you're striking out twenty two percent in college and batting you know two thirty one, it's it's just too much of an ask, for, an ask for me personally, especially when he's not, he's walking at like a 9% rate. If he was walking around 15%, I, I would care less, but there's enough questions with everything else. He, he's gone from a top 10 guy to maybe he slips into the first round at the back end. And he's got to honestly, he's got to perform. He's got to finish the season strong to really be able to stay there because he doesn't have that premium position, defensive uh, placement that would, possibly paper over some of those
3: problems yeah he was my prediction uh pre for the orioles to take but maybe we get him in a second round now yeah i mean I, i'd be fine with him in the second round like you know maybe
0: it's the type of thing you know get say player development is a wonderful thing but you know the draft is just one it's a large piece of the puzzle but it's just one piece of the puzzle player development can do wonders with players and maybe player development could you know get with them maybe there's a change to a swing that they can make i haven't i haven't dug too much into his uh you know comparison side by side last year this year or well last year is a bad example because he had an injury so uh freshman year when he was you know he was only batting like 280 290 something like that not incredible but you know 280 and you know 300 iso that that'll play 230 and a 260 iso that's uh that's that's a bit tougher. So, again, I haven't had the chance to really look side by side, but maybe there's an adjustment that he could make that player development could work with him on. You know, again, I'd be fine with him in second round if he falls that far, um, assuming, again, things don't just crash and burn.
1: So we got another question coming in here. Uh, well, this would be separate discussion, but Jason has an interesting question here. With internationally speaking? Any names on the Orioles' radar now?
3: Hmm. That one I'm
1: not sure about. (laughs) That's out of my realm.
3: (laughs) Nick, didn't um, Baseball America tweet something about we were in on a couple guys that were in the top 30 or so? Yeah, I know they had
2: that one piece recently looking at uh, the early top 20. I don't think they had their list. That was something Ben Badler put out. I don't think that was something that was talent. I think he he followed up with a tweet that said this isn't the talent ranking, but this is kind of how – Sort of is. It's based on who they were projecting to get the most money next year and the Orioles are connected to a guy who's 15, 16 right now. I don't know his name off the top of my head. But- I say yeah. I just
0: I just did a little googling on that one. So they just released their 2021-2022 rankings, uh, about yeah, a little over a month ago. One guy that uh the only time the Orioles get mentioned on these uh on this in this uh, big board is a guy named uh, Braylon Tavera out of the Dominican, uh outfielder, uh sixteen year old, um 6'2", 180, center fielder. Wow, uh, 647 uh, six, 60-yard dash. So that's a, that's some
1: plus speed there.
3: <laughs> wow, come on down.
1: <laughs> so for those that are listening to this audio recording later are wondering why we're responding to things kind of in real time like that, and Bob can give a little bit of background here, but because we do a live video stream now, our listeners can actually ask questions in real time.
3: Yeah, I mean, every Wednesday around 6.30 most of the time, you know, we will... Go live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you see us on there, hop on, ask a question, and there's a very good chance we're going to answer it.
1: Yeah, and I think Steven set an on the verge record uh, tonight for not just the number of guest appearances—you're now at three—but then for uh, listener questions, fan interactions—they're showing up for Steve. <laughs> hey,
0: I say I'll take it. I I, I, lo- I love answering. I love talking about this stuff. I mean. I'll be honest, like before I started working with the Rays, I I paid attention to the draft a little bit, but it wasn't really an area of focus. At this point, it's my area of baseball that I love digging into, trying to find this sort of stuff. You know, once, so, you know, I'm a statistics professor in my day job. Once the semester ends in about three weeks. So right now, the only people, uh, only players that I got model scores for right now are in Baseball America's top 300. At that point, I'm going to start to, at the end of the semester, I'm going to start digging into try to figuring out who's uh, eligible that isn't ranked and start trying to dig, you know, into those like who do we take in the 15th round sort of questions that could be, you know, small conference performer bat that isn't ranked. I love digging through this stuff and I find it absolutely fascinating. It's one of those areas that have, You know, I don't want to say we we haven't figured out any part of baseball, but there's been so much focus on hitting on pitching, you know, especially recently the research and like seam, uh, seam shifted wake or, you know, all that sort of stuff that's come out in the last year. But the draft is still so much of a question mark, you know, once, once they kind of dig in that, then we have to get into internet, figuring out international end of things, which I mean, who knows on that one, but I love talking about this stuff. I mean, seriously, bring on the questions by all means.
2: And I, I, it's it's disappointing too. I don't know what your opinion is about this going from 40 rounds to 20 rounds now, and it seems like it's we're going to be stuck at 20 rounds at the most moving forward. And I, I think it's it's kind of disappointing because me going, to, I went to JMU, so small school, right. but they've produced some you know draft picks recently, and it's things for kids like that and those like guys Like you seem to be most interested in. That I also enjoy finding those those diamonds in the roughs. Like how many of those guys are we going to miss out on now? And it's
0: yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to be stuck at 20 Um, because, I mean, you figure 20 new players a year, that is one thing that, you know, just a little shy of assuming you drafted entirely for putting together a team that is one minor league team. So even if they do, you know, even with the proposed cutting down of the minor league systems, all that sort of thing, I think they're going to still up. I don't think we're going to get back to 40. I really don't. I think it'll get to twenty five at some point, maybe thirty, but I think twenty five is where it's going to wind out falling in the end, and that that's going to be a major part of the next uh, CBA, I'm sure. You know, all the discussions. Well, maybe not a major part. They got too many things to try to iron out others, but it's absolutely going to be a discussion. There's probably one side's going to use that as a as a bargaining chip, and it's going to go back and forth. But I, I think they're going to wind out settling on twenty five, maybe. Maybe the Players Association could convince them into 30 rounds sort of thing, but uh, I don't think it'd go further than that. And it is a shame. It really is a shame to uh, lessen that pathway, it seems, for especially smaller school guys, you know, the D2 guys, you know, JUCOs out of, you know, out of Florida. That, that was something that just absolutely opened my eyes when I got into the race, how many much talent comes out of JUCOs. Like, <sighs> closing off that path really is unfortunate.
1: Yes, there's a lot of uh, questions between now and the draft, but Stephen has really covered a lot of ground tonight. We appreciate him doing that, and I know we're absolutely going to have you on between now and July when the draft takes place, but in the meantime, uh, tell our listeners where they can uh, read and uh, listen to your work. Now that you're a uh, co-host here on Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. Yeah,
0: I guess I am. I, what, been doing that, I guess, maybe about six weeks now? Still kind of odd. Um, yeah, so every... Well, we record on Thursday night, but it usually comes out on uh, Fridays. Co-host of the Warehouse with Chris Stoner and Matthew Corey. My writing shows up. Let's see. At this point in the year, about once a month is when I'll update uh, model scores on Baltimore sports and life. As we get closer, once we hit June, I'll start doing probably a couple articles a month. When we hit July, just you know, just start looking on the site every couple of days because I'll have an update with every single bit of new information or you know, digging into the fifteenth and twentieth rounds at that point. Um, but. Also, this is one thing I need to do ASAP at this point, but uh, so I don't always post my full model output because, you know, getting a list of 300 players is not exactly the best place to put it in an article, but my scores are all posted at uh, Sabermetric Sandlot, which is my own just personal blog where I have uh, the full scores. I'm in the process of trying to get together individual player pages that has, you know, the bio info, their um, their adjusted stats, all that sort of thing. That's, again, all my list once the semester ends. But uh, you can find the information there. Sometimes I'll post little updates about, you know, who the risers and fallers are during the week. But um, I guess I better go update that now since people might start looking
1: at in the next 24 hours or so. (laughs) Well, we really appreciate your insight. Um, Thank you so much for coming on, Stephen. Um, And as we mentioned earlier, um, if you happen to live stream on The Verge when we record, typically Wednesday nights at 6.30 Eastern, uh, you can send in a question while we we're on the air and whether it's a guest like we had tonight with Steven or if it's just Nick, Bob and I, uh, we'll try to get your, to your questions on the air. So we'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest articles, um, including Bob's uh, three-up, three-down piece for this past week, which went up on Monday uh nick and i will have some stories up there as well in the future and steven will so be sure to check that out and hop on the message board and also check out our uh ravens covers and some of the other general sports covers we have over at baltimore sports and life.com and uh continue to follow us on twitter at bsl on the Verge. uh thank you for listening tonight for Stephen loftus our